welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Well, folks, as I invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 10, we're finally going to meet a man that we've been talking about for a while now. Uh, He is Cornelius the Centurion. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you are familiar with his name. You know him to be a prominent figure in Scripture. And the quality that makes him so noteworthy is the fact that Cornelius becomes the first non-Jew, the first straight Gentile to be directly grafted into the church uh, without having first converted to Judaism. Up until this point in time, uh, every Christian has either been a Jew or he or she was a Gentile who had first formally uh, converted to Judaism, observing the right of circumcision for men, uh, but formally coming into Judaism. Therefore, all Christians during the, uh, the roughly first ten years of the church age still classified the chosen people of God as physically descendants of Abraham. Understandably then, prior to Acts chapter 10, Christianity has remained a strictly Jewish phenomenon. That is soon to change, as a large band of Gentiles in Caesarea is about to be baptized by the Holy Spirit, then immersed in water by Peter without ever having first converted to Judaism. Uh, This adaptation, if I could call it that, for the church, it's a much bigger adjustment than we initially realize. Uh, Surely an unanticipated development for the church. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 4, the Apostle Paul describes uh, this direct and full inclusion of Gentiles into Christ's church as, quote, a mystery of Christ which in previous generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy prophets and and apostles in the Spirit. To be specific, so he gets real specific about what this mystery was, to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Folks, we have been, by God, included. There ought to be a little celebrating right there. There is cause to rejoice, for that was not previously possible for us. Uh, Prior to Christ, uh, prior to the cross and Calvary, the Gentile nations dwelt in darkness, and and your salvation as a Gentile was extremely unlikely in ages past. 
Yet today God has made that offer to you, the forgiveness of sins through Christ. Boy, and that ought to have us dancing in the aisles. Stop. That's, we're not that kind of church, all right? But this transition and inclusion of us by the grace of God, folks, it is monumental. The church never saw this coming. In fact, in Colossians 1 verse 26, Paul describes it again as, quote, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. You know, for Paul to describe uh, the, the, the Gentiles, the inclusion of us as previously hidden, means that God by his providence had concealed this revelation until the correct moment in time, until Cornelius uh, and his household is brought in. You know, though the principle of inclusion, it is, it is clearly woven throughout the Old Testament, and the declaration that, that all nations will become children of Abraham, joint heirs of God's kingdom through Christ, though that is easily today discerned in the Old Testament writings, nonetheless, God had, in ages past, prohibited it, inhibited men from understanding it. They didn't see it. They're as clear as day for us today. When they looked at it, they just did not perceive it. And and by concealing this as a mystery, you might ask, why would God do that? What's the point of that? Well, for one thing, he prevented inclusion of the Gentiles from coming too soon. Christ had to be born first. And to fulfill all promises and prophecies stated under the Old Covenant, the Messiah had to be offered to the Jew first, and he was. And this perception by the early church that Christianity was to remain a strictly Jewish sect, uh, it's magnified by the fact that when this news reaches Jerusalem, as to how Gentiles were baptized into the faith by Peter, you know, Peter's going to have some explaining to do. He truly is. Oh, the nerve that he would do such a thing. Uh, Jewish Christians did not like it. You know, they rather enjoyed the ethnic privilege that they had had, uh, Peter therefore will be needing to defend his actions in coming chapters uh, of preaching the gospel to Gentiles, and he will do so most effectively. I will once again state for the benefit of our newest visitors, because there is great misunderstanding today concerning the relationship between Jew and Gentile. There will be a lot of clarity brought to us on that in the coming weeks. But when Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 that the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also the Greek, that is a statement of chronology. Not of priority, chronology. The offer of forgiveness through Jesus Christ was extended to the Jew first. Obviously, during the life of Christ as he walked the earth. And uh, the first roughly 10 years of Christendom, exclusively to Jews. But about the year 42 AD, the Greeks 
uh, began to be grafted in, starting right here with Cornelius and his household, a major turning point in history. And the man Cornelius, he becomes uh, quite an amazing character study for us today. Um, God is going to remind us through his story uh, that you and I do not need to convert to Judaism first in order to be reconciled to God the Father through Christ his Son. So there's going to be a little investigation as to how all this happened. It's included by Luke as he's writing Acts. How did all this occur? And uh, today we're simply going to look into the the background of Cornelius, uh, the spiritual mindset of Cornelius prior to the visit by an angel, prior to a visit by the apostle Peter, Uh, When Cornelius and his household are converted to Christianity, uh, we're going to, prior to that, uh, climb into his mind. Climb into his head to try to discern what was Cornelius thinking before hearing about Jesus. What, What was he thinking before he had heard that Christ had died for our sins and rose from the dead? I titled today's message, uh, Prayers That Rise Like Incense. If I were to retitle it today, I'd just simply title it The Prayer of Cornelius. uh, Because Cornelius has been drawing nearer to God through prayer. God has already been calling Cornelius closer. Cornelius is already responding to the call of God. uh, But salvation has not yet come to his household. Let's read from the beginning in Acts chapter 10 and verse 1. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. And fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And the angel said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter, He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, Cornelius summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Well, as we begin, consider just for a moment. All of the generations of Gentiles that died in their sins, whose souls perished before the grace of God in Jesus was extended to me and to you. You know, previously there was no chair for us to you know, sit at the table among God's people or, or sit in God's kingdom. And then came the cross 
where Christ our Savior died to, to appease, to, to satisfy the wrath of God. It's referred to as propitiation, a satisfaction of God's wrath against sins. Because before conversion, we were by nature, Scripture tells us, children of wrath, even as the rest. You know, our week's memory verse, if you look at the bulletin, describes us as such. We were previous to Christ, previous before trusting in Christ, we were by nature children of wrath. Uh, that same passage in Ephesians chapter 2 describes us as, as previously dead in our transgressions. We were dead until he made us alive. So at the beginning of chapter 10, is Cornelius any different than this? No. No, no. He's dead in his trespasses and sins. An important point that will uh, play out before we finish today. Nonetheless, uh, as the world turns, you know, Cornelius was considered a pretty stand-up guy. At least as the world assesses this. Um, in verse 1, it reveals he was a military officer. He was in charge of a hundred soldiers. He, he, he was a Roman centurion. A man's man. He was, in fact, in command uh, of part of a special battalion called the Italian Cohort. Indicates uh, this particular regiment stationed in Caesarea was comprised of soldiers who had themselves originated from Italy. Therefore, he's a staunch Roman. He is a true Italian Roman, likely proud of his nat national heritage, uh, as maybe some of us have a little lingering pride of our heritage. <laughs> I know I was Norwegian. Oh, forget it, I didn't want to mention that. <laughs> no, he's an Italian. He's a, he's a Roman. He's a centurion. Certain historical records suggest uh, this Italian cohort, it included skilled archers. This regiment was assigned to defending Roman interests in the crucial port of Caesarea. So I asked the sound booth to pull up a couple photos now, beginning with, with the first. Um, think about loyalty with the Romans. You've got a crucial port, Caesarea. You can see there it's about 35 miles north of Joppa, right on the Mediterranean Sea. Probably about 55 or 60 miles uh, northwest of Jerusalem. That is where Caesarea is located. Very crucial port, guarded by Roman troops. Think of the loyalty the Romans expected out of their people. It was a major seaport. It was a strategic city on the Mediterranean coast. Um, it had a spectacular safe harbor. If you'd pull that next photo up. It's a rendition there. You can see off to your left, uh, there is, there's a spectacular safe harbor that was built uh, for military ships and cargo ships to come in. It was, it was a very good access uh, for ships. When you got down to Joppa, it was so shallow, it wasn't a good port down there. Uh, this is where, uh, where the important uh, 
incoming shipments for Romans came in, also into Judea, because this is a portion of Judea, quite a city um, right there on the Mediterranean coast. It was also considered home by the Roman governor, had traditionally been the home of the Roman governor, uh, Pontius Pilate actually considered it his home previously. This is this uh, interaction here with Cornelius is after Pontius Pilate was relieved of his duty. But uh, Cornelius is there. He is a significant actor in Caesarea. And uh, the presence of this Italian cohort uh, contributes to most historians deciding to date this passage somewhere between 41 and 44 A.D., no earlier, at the, at, the, at the earliest, it could have been 39 AD. Uh, but uh, think, if, Ju- if Jesus was crucified, uh, MacArthur's made a very, John MacArthur's made a very good argument uh, for Jesus having been crucified in 30 AD. Uh, this was likely, this event in our, in our text today is likely somewhere between 11 and 14 years after Jesus rose from the dead. By this time in Cornelius' life, he had, well, he'd become a devoutly religious man. You know, if Johnny Cash were to describe him today, he'd probably say that man, he walked the line. That means that, that you, you, you walk the straight and narrow path. He was, he was morally decent. He sought to serve both God and government. Uh, not an easy task. In any day, fallen world. And he's a true leader. You, know, you don't become a leader simply because you are promoted to a position of leadership. There are many people who, for one reason or another, are promoted uh, to high positions in government or in uh, education or in business or, or, or other places that actually have no skill or aptitude to lead. Uh, a plaque on the wall does not make you a leader. Uh, what makes a person a leader is that people will willingly follow. I was always told, you know, if you look around and no one is following you, you're not a leader. And most are not meant to be leaders. But Cornelius is. The preliminary evidence is found in verse 2. It's, it's how Cornelius' immediate family follows him in fearing God. Uh, you might say, well, yeah, that's nice, but it's not all that unusual. But then in verse 24, we will learn his extended family, relatives, also follow him. And in that same verse, his closest friends follow him. And in verse 7 combined with verse 22, we'll see that his servants and the soldiers also followed Cornelius. Everybody follows Cornelius. Well, he's a bona fide leader. Uh, there, there are generally two types of leaders that you encounter. Uh, there are some who are just born leaders. They, they have charisma, they have presence, they, they have a natural ability to communicate and to motivate people, uh, others to follow. For them, you know, leading is ex- instinctive for them. Few are those who are born, uh, natural born leaders. Uh, then there are those who God makes into leaders. He did this with Gideon, did it with David. Um, 
It's the type of man who doesn't himself strike out to lead. Uh, Many of them would prefer not to lead at all. Uh, They are provoked into leading due to a deep concern for God and his people. David was kind of small, wasn't respected much at first. Gideon was a scaredy cat. Yet God raised these men up to lead. We had discussion this morning in an adult Bible class how how God uses uh, characters that you would never guess in order to serve Him, uh, fallen men, men who are imperfect, to step up and, and to take charge when the timing is important. We see this right here. Uh, there are those who are born to be leaders. There are those who God makes into leaders. Both are used by God, by the way. Uh, I have to imagine as a Roman centurion, Cornelius had natural leadership potential. But at some point in his life, something caused him to become very concerned about God and about God's people. It's revealed through the way Cornelius continually prayed. He, he gave alms to God's people. If you have a New American Standard version of the Bible, you'll see that verse 2, there translators added a modifier, Jewish, to describe the type of people to whom Cornelius gave alms. The New American Standard reads, Cornelius gave many alms to the Jewish people. That word there, Jewish, you'll notice is italicized by the translators, uh, telling us that that they added that word to assist us in understanding. That's what the italicized words mean there. They're added to help us understand. And and it's an appropriate rendering because the Greek understanding of the term alms is charitable deeds given to God's people. So he's devout. He fears God. He's striving to serve God and and the people of God, Israel. And this understanding is reinforced when the angel says to Cornelius in verse 4, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Here's my belabored point. Uh, Being devout and giving alms. Cornelius hasn't been directing his money to the goodwill or other secularized charities that have no ultimate religious purpose in them. Rather, in verse 22, his servants will inform Peter that Cornelius is, quote, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews. So Cornelius had come to love and to embrace the people of God who, who at least according to his current understanding are the Jewish people. Ironically, his is essentially the same understanding Peter and the church have. The Jews are God's people. Again, described as devout, righteous, a God-fearing man is how his 
His people described him. You know, Cornelius has embraced the God of Israel, the law of Israel, the people of Israel. When his schedule makes him available, he's probably attending the local synagogue in Caesarea, filled with Jews, where he hears the law of God as it is read, and therefore Cornelius has heard the law of God, but he has not yet heard about the Son of God. Interesting, in Luke chapter 7, there is a similar story of another centurion. He was from Capernaum, uh, who sent word by messengers to Jesus concerning his sick and dying slave. And he asked that Jesus not trouble himself by coming coming to visit his home, because that, that centurion deemed himself and his house unworthy for Christ to enter, uh, but instead asked Jesus to just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And that passage reveals how Jesus, he marveled at the man. And he turned and said to the crowd that was following him, quote, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And in that scenario, messengers who approached Jesus, uh, those messengers were Jewish elders, approached on behalf of the centurion. They described the centurion as uh, worthy, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built our synagogue. Was that centurion truly worthy? Because he loved the Jewish nation and built them a synagogue. Or was Cornelius worthy simply because he prayed and behaved and gave alms? What we have in both instances are centurions who have embraced God and his people, the the Jews, Convinced by the scriptures that God had chosen Abraham's descendants. And, and through them, he's been a, God has been achieving redemption through a, through a Hebrew ethnicity. Yet neither of these centurions ever converts to Judaism. They remain Gentiles. They're, they're non-Jews. And not converting to Judaism... Is there any hope for either one for salvation? Here's the rub. Under the old covenant, as it was written, no. No. With crystal clarity, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus states, this is Ephesians 2 verse 12, Quote, therefore remember that, ye, that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the circumcision, it's like you uncircumcised, that was the word for the Gentiles, by the Jews. Paul says, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, 
excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The Gentiles had no hope. Now we know this all changes in Christ. But until this point, Cornelius had not heard of Christ. The best that Cornelius or a Gentile could hope for under the law was convert to Judaism. That's at least as as the law is written. And when doing so, you must observe all the ordinances contained in the law. You must be circumcised. You must observe the Sabbath Day on the seventh day, you must you must embrace dietary restrictions. Boy, becoming a Jew is really hard for a centurion to do. This is why God chose an Italian, a Roman centurion, as his first example of inclusion. This was very difficult for Cornelius. He was still far away, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, without God, without hope in the world. You see, our common mistake, when when first reading this haphazardly concludes, oh, this is what we say, we say, oh, Cornelius is so close to salvation. He prays to God. He's devoutly religious. He embraces the Jewish people. He gives alms. He's almost there. All he needs is Jesus to come alongside. And, you know, Jesus put his little tip of his finger on the scale just to push a little harder. Jesus put his pinky on the scale. Oh, Cornelius is, he's already in. You know, we often conclude this with people whom we know. Nice people, devoutly religious people. They pray, they give to charities, never hear them curse. We assess these neighbors as, boy, they're so close to heaven. All they need is just to stir in a dash of grace, a pinch of Jesus, and they'll be in. When the reality is that they remain far away, dead in their sins, separated from the people of God, and the wrath of God abides on them. Getting into heaven by alms, by building a synagogue. The prophet Isaiah wrote, all our deeds are like filthy rags. The Apostle Paul, who did a little bit of praying, did a little bit of preaching when he was Saul, will later conclude, quote, I had to count all of that, all of my religious credentials, everything that I had previously done as dung. You see, the reality is that Cornelius is not almost in. In any respect, he's not righteous before God. 
He isn't almost there. Left to himself, he will never enter into heaven. He remains far away. He doesn't need a pinky. He needs a savior to be a propitiation for his sins. He needs the cross where the wrath of God that abides on him can be appeased. There's an illustration from R.C. Sproul. Hadn't decided until this moment whether I'm going to use it. Many of you have probably seen it. R.C. is on quite a large stage, a much larger stage than this one side to side. And he brings up a couple volunteers and to illustrate our separation from God. And uh, on the one side, he, let's illustrate with the cross, he places God on the far end of the stage in perfect, infinite holiness. Sin has never touched him. Perfect holiness of God and of Christ represented on one end of the stage. Then on the far other end of the stage, he walks over and he places a man representing Hitler. And R.C. says, you know what the problem is? He goes, on this graduated scale, when we view ourselves, he said, we'll normally put ourselves kind of over here. And he goes, when the reality is, you and I and Cornelius are much closer to Hitler in our sin. We tend to think far too little of the holiness of God. Entrance into the kingdom far too easy. Just a simple little step. Everything that we've done, we just add in a little bit of Jesus. But recognizing Cornelius has not and cannot attain any standing of divine righteousness, well, it changes everything. As a Gentile, as a centurion, Cornelius, Cornelius is in a serious pickle. Serious pickle. His situation is desperate. A theologian I have quoted numerous times uh, during the series in Acts. His name's Eckhart Schnabel. He's a professor at uh, Gordon Conwell University. He writes the following quote: "Well, it would not have been easy for a leading military officer who served in a Roman city, which was the seat of the governor of a province, to demonstrate publicly his sympathies for the Jewish people and for their faith." Oh, it would not have been easy. Rome demanded supreme loyalty among its military. And the Old Covenant did not make it easy for Gentiles to become Jews. Cornelius could not enter 
his commanding officers home without risking ceremonial defilement, clearly would not have had dinner with him any longer. He'd need to turn his back on his career, his country, and his friends. (laughs) A centurion just doesn't call up his commanding officer and say, hey, you know what? I quit. You don't get to quit. Now, Jesus doesn't make it exactly easy for Gentiles either. Says, if anyone wishes to follow me, he must pick up his cross and deny himself daily. But at least Christ makes it possible. He makes it possible for Gentiles to enter the kingdom. And our inclusion as Gentiles into the people of God begins properly with understanding Cornelius. Folks, there is nothing about Cornelius that impressed God. He was not cleansed in the blood of Christ. And knowing God's holiness and the severity of man's rebellion on the other end of the stage, the sinful nature, and the only course of salvation that is prescribed in Scripture. The following is presumably representative of what went down with Cornelius. How did this go down? How did this go down? We know that Jesus said, no man can come to me unless my Father who is in heaven draws him. It's John 6.44. So the Holy Spirit had initiated a work within the heart of Cornelius. He did it by exposing Cornelius to Judaism in Caesarea. And through reading of the law, you know, presumably or probably at a local synagogue. We learned through our memory passage last week in Galatians chapter 3 that before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law. And that the law becomes our tutor to lead us to Christ. That was our lesson in, in youth group and adult study this last Wednesday. The the law has become a tutor to lead us to Christ. So so the law had become Cornelius' teacher about sin. The schoolmaster who taught Cornelius. And at the synagogue he heard, uh, thou shalt not covet. But then Cornelius, he says, but I covet. You shall not bear false witness. But then he noticed how often his mouth distorted the truth about others. Cornelius would hear, on the seventh day you shall do no labor. Yet his prominent position demanded him to manage patrols on any given day of the week. And the Holy Spirit convicted Cornelius of sin. He saw that he had not kept the law. And he determined in his heart that he had not loved God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. That he had not loved his neighbors as himself. He saw he fell short of the law. So what does he do? 
Well, in response to the law, he, he decided he's going to clean himself up. You know, he, he moralizes himself. Like you may have done at some point in your life. Or Cornelius says, I'll, I'll do better. I'll try harder. I'll show love for God's people, the Jews. I'll join them in their synagogue or their church. I'll go when my schedule allows. I'll even give them alms. I'll even make an offering to the people of God as the law of Moses prescribes. And outwardly, Cornelius has become a good man with a good reputation. You know, the, the law will do that for people. It'll clean up your life on the outside. It's one of the reasons that we should have, by the way, the Ten Commandments posted in every city square. It does moralize people. The law of God will always make a society more moral. And it surely made Cornelius a better man. He took a baby step away from Hitler. Was he righteous? Can the law save him? We learned in our lesson this past Wednesday, the law cannot save. Why? Because to be deemed righteous before a holy God, the law demands moral perfection. At page 15 of our study guide, The author writes, what God requires, to put it simply, is nothing less than perfection. This is clearly the teaching we find all the way through the Bible. In Leviticus 19 verse 2, we read, You shall be holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. Our Lord Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, expressed the same idea when he said, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And that is why the Catechism asks what it does in question five. Can you keep all this perfectly? The obvious answer, if we are honest, is that we can't possibly do it. It's just a tutor that leads us to grace in Christ. We are honest. We have not been righteous. We cannot be righteous apart from Christ our Savior. And though the life of Cornelius has been cleaned up, the closer he looks at the mirror of the law of God, you know, the more he sees the flaws. The more he sees the wrinkles, the, the imperfections in himself. How is his heart? Oh, he remains dissatisfied with himself. The law does not make him proud. It makes him humble. As he tries harder, he determines it still will never be enough. Nothing I can do can attain the righteous standard 
of God. That's the only conclusion Cornelius could have come to. You might ask, well, how am I so confident this is what is going through Cornelius' mind? It's because the Bible reveals this as the progression of every person prior to trusting in Christ that we have not kept the law. The Holy Spirit convicts the heart of sin. We become desperate for a solution for our unrighteousness. Oh, Cornelius feared God all right. And sharing with his family the law that he had learned at the synagogue or from from the Jews, so did all his household. They all feared God. Did that make them righteous? The following is how I believe Cornelius prayed. You might say, you know, the passage doesn't reveal what the content was of Cornelius' prayer. Uh, I kind of beg to differ. Twice we are told his prayers have been heard. Verses 4 and verse 31. And the text implies Peter is coming with God's answer to Cornelius' prayer. What is the answer to Cornelius' prayer? Jesus. So what is Cornelius' question? I'd say we know the question. Cornelius prayed to the God of Israel, I believe, something similar to this. I don't have a way. I've tried and I've tried to keep your law. I fail and I fail time again. There's nothing in me that can satisfy your righteous standard. I'm lost and without hope in the world. I was not born as one of your people. I am a Gentile. All of my family are Gentiles. All of my friends are Gentiles. All of my soldiers, all of my loyal servants are Gentiles. But even if we were to abandon our jobs and our lives, and all of us were to convert to Judaism, we can still never keep your law. And I can see nothing in your word that offers hope. If there is salvation for me, a Gentile, it is a mystery to me, Cornelius probably concluded. And I expect in some words he said, Lord, have mercy on me and upon my house. We are all sinners. He was pleading in some language. And how he could be forgiven of his sins. Folks, that is the type of prayer that gets answered. And Cornelius had been petitioning God on behalf of everybody who he knows. He had shared what he had learned through the law with his family and with his friends and with his servants, all of them Gentiles. And he had a sincere and deep concern for the souls of all. How do we know that? Because Cornelius calls every one of them together to hear what the Apostle Peter has to say. 
And Peter's, Peter's answer is from God. And it is through Jesus. He wants them all to be there together at his house. His friends. He calls his family. He calls his extended family and says, you all have to be here. I'm going to get an answer. Ultimately, the whole household gets saved. Folks, that's a leader. That's how a leader prays, not just for himself, not just for his own successes or his own problems, his own well-being, but for the wellness and the salvation of all who surround him. And God is pleased. Well, that's the kind of prayer he'll answer. And next week, God is going to hand the ball to Peter. Folks, this is while the Gentiles are gathering together. At Cornelius' home, Cornelius is getting everyone prepped for an answer. <laughs> and Peter's going to reply, what? No, not me, Lord. I've never touched anything unclean. <laughs> so next Sunday, we're going to get to see who wins the argument in that one. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, as we look at this man with a family, with coworkers, with, with friends, one, uh, one man who is desperately concerned, not just for himself, but for everybody who surrounds him, And you tell him through an angel, he's going to get an answer. And it's one that's unexpected. It was a mystery. Those who were previously excluded are now included. And the whole house is going to be there to hear the news when Peter comes. Oh, Father, that, that is a leader that is someone who cares for others and not only worries about self. You're going to show us how the people will follow. Lord, let that be said of us. For those whom we love, those who we are concerned about, uh, knowing that they cannot appease you through keeping your law, they're really not that good. And they desperately need Jesus. Father, use us. Make us willing even to go to that which seems unclean. To proclaim the gospel of forgiveness and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.